right, so how many of you remember when the uh, chicken soup books came out? Remember this? Chicken soup for the soul all of a sudden became chicken soup for everything. Which, look, and I don't blame, like publishing is hard and getting people to buy your books is hard. And if you find a concept that works, I mean, run with it. You know, chicken soup for redheaded mothers of triplets. I don't know. Like, it's a thing. I remember when Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life came out. And he kind of had a similar thing going on. It tapped into this, this need, this desire that people had that finally someone was going to help them live with a sense of, uh, with a sense of purpose and live with a sense of direction and live with a sense of, uh, of, of, of understanding their world. But then like it got crazy and it purpose-driven parenting and purpose-driven marriage and purpose-driven worship and purpose-driven horticulture. I don't think that last one, <laughs> that wasn't a thing. Um, but here's the thing that it did. It tapped into this really deep desire um, that people felt um, where they were trying to make sense of their lives. They were trying to make sense of the um, what they were supposed to be living for, what they were supposed to be doing with their lives. Uh, and it gave some practical, concrete steps in that direction. So let's... Let's consider our text, because this text, this text in Philippians doesn't on first read sound like or feel like a a purpose-driven text, right? It doesn't feel like a text that's just going to jump out there and say, and this is steps one through seven of how to live a full and satisfying life, right? This text, Philippians chapter 2 Verses 5 through 11 have been fantastic for systematic theologies, for people that are looking to understand this kenosis of Christ, the humiliation of Christ, the, the incarnation of Jesus. But why? Why did Paul all of a sudden turn from his own troubles in his imprisonment in Rome and turn to this hymn about Jesus. Two weeks ago, if you remember, we talked about Jesus's descent, Jesus's humiliation. Do you remember this? We talked about Jesus um, being the one who took on our sin, our guilt, our shame, and that Jesus was humiliated. But how does that fit? Because Paul, in back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, right, Paul has said, um, let each of you um, do nothing, verse 3, from selfish ambition or conceit. So we said the, the underlying language there means something like, a hyper-fighting vainglory. We don't use vainglory a whole lot, do we? But he said, don't do anything from a glory hunger that can't be satisfied no matter how much you fight for it. Don't do that. And then he breaks into this hymn. 
Rather, he says, they should have the mind of Christ. And having the mind of Christ didn't simply mean that Jesus was our example or one to be emulated, but it was much more deeply rooted. And again, this is the, this is the thing, like Christianity that gets preached that um, becomes like uh, follow Jesus as your example and live these steps to live a happy life with God drives me bonkers because Christianity fundamentally is a mystery. Christianity fundamentally is this mysterious thing where we are in union with Jesus. We are united with the risen Christ. And because that's happening, because Jesus rose for us and poured his spirit out into us, we are now participating in the very life of God. Okay? That's not seven steps to a practical, happy life. That's mystery. That's beauty. But we don't understand that, do we? But Paul says, have the mind of Christ. In this, this deep sense that we, because we are in Christ, they can share in his mind in the sense that the spirit that brought Jesus forth from the grave is the spirit that's now at work in them. So now where does it all land? Where does it go? And that's where we're going to, that's where we're going to focus our attention this morning. I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Let's stand together as we hear God's word read. I'll start at verse 8 just for context. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. Remember, sorry, you remember talking about that two weeks ago? Jesus was never humbled by anyone or anything. He humbled himself, right? Just... I'm still chewing on that. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Let's pray. No one, Father. No one has loved us the way that you have. No one has pursued us the way that you have. No one could have ever rescued us the way that you have. And no one can satisfy us the way that you do. So, Father, this morning we bring our glory hunger to the only place it can be satisfied. We bring our vain glory and we lay it at the foot of the cross and we ask that you would fill us instead with the glory of the Son of God. Would we dwell deeply in this mystery and would we be changed this day? For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. All right. What was Jesus' purpose? What was Jesus' purpose-driven life? Jesus' purpose, Jesus' mission was to reconquer, reclaim, and recreate us 
to be worshipers of the living God who alone deserves all of our worship. That was Jesus' purpose. Jesus' purpose was to reconquer, reclaim, and recreate us to be worshipers of the living God. So in this third stanza of this great hymn of the church, Paul is pointing us towards our true north. This is where it's all heading. This, This is where it's all going. This is the common alignment point that we're all oriented towards. Anything that hinders this or distracts from this or distorts this needs to be fled. Now, let me ask you something. How many of you have been in a uh, some sort of watercraft type thing on a body of water like a river and everybody gets given a paddle? Right? You know, I don't, I don't know what to call it because I've only, I don't think I've ever been on one, but apparently people get in boats and they paddle. Um, did you know, now some of you that actually do rowing, the, the Sands family is mocking me right now silently, graciously, but silently. If you're rowing and someone's paddle is, is not doing what the, everyone else's paddle is doing, what does it do? It messes you up, right? You can flip the boat. You can go a different direction. Paul's trying to help the Philippian church recover their alignment point. He's trying to get everybody's paddles, everybody's oars in the water at the same time, at the same way, going in the same direction. Because if you don't have that, you'll capsize. Or you'll get really frustrated. He is turning their attention towards this common alignment point, okay? So two weeks ago, we talked about the downward trajectory of Christ as he suffered humiliation, as he was made to be the sin that was us. And he did so because he allowed it at every turn, at every respect, because of his love for us. But I want you to see this. I want you to see how the trajectory changes in verse 9. Starting in verse 9, we begin to see an upswing from Christ's humbling descent to his glorious ascent. God the Father takes the initiative and becomes the actor. Listen to what um, Dennis Johnson says. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name in verse 9. Then at the finale of the Christ hymn, at every creature's knee and tongue, uh, as every creature's knee and tongue respond to God's elevation of Christ, the result is nothing less than the glory of God the Father in Philippians 2.11. The Father delights to honor the Son for the Son's accomplishment of his redemptive mission. And the honor bestowed on the Son displays in even greater fullness the glory of the Father. Now, wait, now hang with me. We're going to make this make sense. Because remember, I've been pressing the question, why? Why would Paul use this hymn at this time to address these issues that are going on in Philippi? Ready? What do we see here in 
Christ's ascent and in God's bestowing on Jesus admiration, glory, and Jesus in turn returning to God praise and glory. We see the very essence of the creator and the design that we were made in. Listen, the very envy, rivalry, and conceit that Paul was concerned about consuming the Philippian church is completely absent here. Instead, what do you see? Glorious mutuality, beautiful deference, others exalting glory. When God exalts Jesus with the name above every name, the title above every title, we see in this Trinitarian moment the very mindset of Christ that now belongs to us by the grace that is at work in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul is showing us this is what we were made to be in. This is where it's all going. And this you can have, even if it's a taste and a foreshadow now, because you are in Christ. You with me? I got three Presbyterian amens and a lot of glassy-eyed looks. A Presbyterian amen is a head nod. So what's the purpose that I want us to see? Here's what it is. It's an invitation to see the purpose of creation through the pattern of our creator that is woven into our lives by the spirit. Honor one another over self. Reflect the mutual affection of the Trinity and their delight in each other's glory. Do you remember what Jesus's prayer was? In John 17, this was his prayer, that we, the body of Christ, would be one just as he and the Father are one. This is not a, um, this envisioning of this uh, blurring of distinction and distinctive where we all just sort of morph into this blob. That's not what we're talking about. In the Trinity, the Father is distinct from the Son. The Son is distinct of the Spirit. They are three of the, they are, they are the same and, and they are the same Godhead and yet they are distinct in person. So Paul's not saying that we disappear, that we vanish, but Jesus is saying, would they be one just as you, the Father, and I are one. The entire universe is on a trajectory to worship God as the one only worthy object of adoration and affection. So let's see how that unfolds here in the text. Here's the first thing I want you to see. First thing I want you to see is the father's response to the son. Look at verse nine. In verse nine, the father has stopped the dramatic downward spiral of humiliation of the son after the work was completed. Okay. So Paul uses this word here in verse 9. In verse 9, he says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. That word, uh, we, we, we've, we care a lot about how words are used. This word only occurs here in the New Testament. 
Nowhere else in the, in the New Testament does it occur. Highly exalted. Paul recognizes that Christ has been humiliated to the lowest point of the entire creation and is now being raised and exalted to the highest point in all the cosmos. So high, so exalted, so great was that place that that Jesus was exalted to that Paul had to make up a word to make sure that no one else could have that same place. All of Jesus, his divinity, his humanity is now highly exalted because Jesus was the victorious champion over sin and death and grave and entered into the courts of heaven as the victor king with the body of the Christ and the wounds of the redeemer and from his rightful throne poured out his spirit to animate and activate the gifts and grace that he is giving to his people, the church. Now that'll preach. As one commentator puts it, Jesus carried our humanity, now bursting with new creation life, up from the grave into the heavens to take his seat at the Father's right hand. So, now, to the glory that has always been Christ's as the eternal God and creator of the universe, there is new and unprecedented layers that have now been added. His humiliation, his descent, his obedience, his death. He has rescued his enemies and turned us into beloved children of his father. So when God highly exalted his obedient son in reward for his suffering, he bestowed on him the name that is above every name. But what, what, is it, what does that mean? I don't think that Paul here means um, that it's his personal name. But I think he, he sees it rather as a title. It's, it's a title. Jesus is given the title Lord, signifying his supremacy over all the world as the glorified God-man. It was at his resurrection that he was given the title of both Lord and Christ. In Matthew 28, after his resurrection, Jesus says that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. How do we think about this? How do we think about this? I think it's important to realize this. All of us still live in this world, as Paul talked about in chapter 2, verse 3, that make us desperately hungry at some deep level, for accolades, for achievement, for satisfaction. Do you know how exhausting it is to chase after the picture in my mind that I have of the way my life should look? I'll just tell you, it's pretty exhausting. How's it going for you? How's it going living your best life now? Oh, sorry, that's some other guy's phrase. Never mind. How's it going? 
How satisfying is it? How about this? How did it feel the last time that you achieved your next big thing, your next big goal, your next big mountaintop, whatever it was? Maybe you graduated from school. Maybe you got a new job. Maybe you um, um, crossed something off of your bucket list that you were just really looking forward to doing. How long did that euphoric feeling last? Not long, did it? I'm not saying that those things aren't worth pursuing. What I'm asking you is how satisfying those things are as a point to life or as a reason to get out of bed. Because sometimes some of us are just looking for a really good reason to get out of bed and not roll over and turn the alarm off. Because here's the thing. I bet if all of us are honest that whatever your thing is, whether it's your search for accolade, your search for achievement, whether it is your um, desire to be attractive or your desire to be needed or your desire to be wanted or your desire for things to just work out the way they should work out, whatever your thing is or whatever your next big thing was, I guarantee you this, it, it can all be pretty exhausting. Because there's no other pursuit, no other purpose that can actually deliver on its promise of satisfaction. Are you able to say, are you able to say that right now your satisfaction is in Christ the Lord? That whatever he gives you is enough and it's good And it's satisfying. That's part of it. That's part of it. But there's another part of it too. And that is the creation's response to the Son. Okay? So God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I can imagine Paul had a very uh, near and dear sense to writing this particular part of the epistle, can't you? Do you remember Paul's conversion experience? Paul, on the Damascus Road, blinded by a glorious light, struck down so that all he can utter is Lord, right? I can imagine that Paul is going, I've actually caught the matinee of that show. I know what it's going to feel like. (laughs) Paul got a preview of coming attractions. And Paul is looking forward to the day when all of creation will bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. The early church saw Jesus as Lord and confessed him as such. You know, I said earlier that words matter, right? Words words matter. What does it mean exactly to confess 
that Jesus is Lord. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about what it means to say, I believe that Jesus is not only the Savior of the world, Savior of me from my sin, but he is also my Lord because Paul's saying that there's a day coming when everyone will confess Jesus is Lord. Are we a people that confesses Jesus as Lord? And before you answer that too quickly, because I know all of us want to throw the Sunday school hand up and be like, yes, I do. I confess Jesus as Lord. God, Jesus in the Bible. Amen. Before you go hastily answering in the affirmative, I want you for just a moment to consider your life. I want you to consider with me the other 166 hours of the week that you and I don't have the pleasure of one another's company. I want you to consider your time not spent here. Are we a people who confess that Jesus is Lord. We would do well to remember this in the teachings of Jesus, where he quotes the prophet Isaiah in Matthew chapter 15, where he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What what do you do Who ultimately in your life gets to call the shots over your time? Everybody has the same allotment of time. It's a fairly easy concept to talk about. 24 hours in a day, 168 hours in a week. What do you do with your time? Does your free time, your structured time, your idle time, your intentional time, does your time indicate that you believe that Jesus is Lord over your life. What about this? What about the the use of your talents, your gifts, your abilities? What what about, um, does your stewardship of all that you are and all that you're capable of being show your declaration that Jesus is the Lord, not just of the universe, but of your life. That he's the one that's given you your gifts. He is the one that has built you, formed you, structured you in the way that you are so that he can call the shots and utilize you any way that he wants. Does the use of our talent, our giftedness, our being, does it display that we believe that Jesus is Lord? Is Jesus the one that gets to set the trajectory and the direction of your life? What about this? What about your treasure? What about your resources? Do you use your treasure to show that you believe that it is given to you by God so that you may use it in the world for the furtherance of his mission, mandate, and majesty? 
Do you believe through the gift of your treasure that Jesus is Lord? That by using your gifts, by using your treasure, that it would be deployed to bring greater glory and acknowledgement that he is the king of the universe and that he will receive all honor, worship, glory, and worth in his entire creation. Because what Paul is saying here is that there is a day coming when everyone will see and everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. The question is, beloved, as his church, as the blood-bought saints of the living, reigning, righteous king, are we now a people who believe that Jesus is Lord and show that belief in the way that the fruit is borne out in our lives? If you ever want a test of doctrine, show me what you do. I'll tell you what you believe. Show me what you do. I'll tell you what you believe. Do our lives, do the way we live and move and have our being, do they betray the fact that we are a subservient people to the one true righteous king, Jesus, under his lordship, or does it show that we live in compartmentalized kingdoms? where he gets his part and we lay siege to the rest. It's not just to say that Jesus is Lord, to say that Jesus is King. The hope of this passage is that not just is Jesus Lord and King and the victor, but he has God's personal name. Just as you heard Kevin talking earlier, the very personal name of God by which he bound himself to his people. Jesus has that name. So church, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? And if you're here this morning and I went through the list and something struck a nerve and you go, wait a minute, maybe, maybe my life doesn't, lo- doesn't look like I believe that Jesus is Lord, but I really do, then beloved, I have good news for you. Today is the first day of the rest of your life because no matter how askew your life may have run, there is yet more mercy, yet more grace, yet more forgiveness in Jesus for you. And today is a day of salvation and change because the spirit that raised jesus from the dead is the same spirit that has been poured out into you and paul is not saying this to say look at the example that jesus is be more like him he's saying have this mind of christ among you and you can have it because the mind of christ dwells in you by the power of the spirit that's been poured out for you because when you say when you mean that Jesus is the Lord, you are saying again that you are ready to renounce your independence and submit to the will and word of this Lord. It means that you are ready right now to bend your heart to him, to embrace his agenda for you, the whole of your being, your time, your talent, your treasure, your desires, your wants, your wishes, your hopes, your fears, your everything. To say that he is Lord means that he gets to call all of the shots for your life and that his priorities matter over your priorities. References. Huh. I said I had good news. I didn't say I had easy news. 
Grace is sweet, but it hurts a little. <clears throat> Here's the last thing, very quickly. It's that doxological point at the end of verse 11, to the glory of God the Father. The passage has shown us that the vindication of Christ through his resurrection, through his, ascens- his ascension, and his enthronement has reversed the humiliation that he willingly endured in his mission to rescue and redeem his people. And it is a passage replete with hope. Because you know what the scriptures say. He who began a good work in you is what? Faithful to complete it. This is a passage that speaks of love and peace. Look at it, friends. Look, look at this. Look at what we were made to be and look at what we are being remade to be. Look at the glorious purpose for which the entire creation is heading. Look at it. The exhaustion of living under the weight of hyper-fighting vainglory will one day be felt and feared no more. The emptiness of lesser purposes that can neither fulfill nor satisfy will fade away. The freedom that is ours now and will one day be innate in our being. Oh, this freedom will one day finally be the norm rather than the exception. We'll be freed from constantly chasing what can't satisfy and consuming what leaves us perpetually thirsty. This passage is an invitation to hopefulness. Paul didn't give this to the Philippian church in order to crush them or condemn them. He gave it to them as an announcement of this is the glory that is ours now and this is the trajectory that all of creation is heading towards. It's an offer to partake of now what will then be fully ours, to align our hearts with the heart of God to see that our ultimate purpose and promise is found in his abiding glory and worth. Oh, friends, taste and see the freedom of calling Jesus Lord. Know and savor the relief that is living in the pattern of our creation and our creator. I, I long, I long for the day when my angst-ridden Backside-watching, self-seeking heart will finally be subdued and transformed as it willingly and gladly bows to the lordship and the rule of Christ. Cannot wait for the day that I don't need anxiety medicine anymore, but I can just look at Jesus and it's okay. that I will know the sweet relief of being in my proper place where Jesus is Lord and Jesus is King and I can be satisfied in him and all is well in the world to the praise of his glory and majesty and honor and grace that he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, that day is not here yet. But here's what I know. I know that I'm not the same guy who I was a year ago. I have full confidence that I will not be the same guy a year from now that I am today. 
And if that's true for me, believe me, it can be true for you too. So let's pray and let's ask God for help for this to be our mind and our hope.